Well, welcome to Inside EMS. Today's Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by FirstNet, built with AT&T. FirstNet uses the latest technology to keep your lines of communication and data open to help you respond faster, smarter, and safer. With me always is my good friend. You know him. You know him by the name KG or my good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh, not much, man. I'm, I'm just having a good time here in Chattanooga, uh, hanging out at LibertyCon and and uh, uh, feeding my 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 writer Jones. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying hanging out with some fantasy and sci-fi writers at, at LibertyCon. Yeah, how's that going? It's it's going well, man. We're you know trying to learn more about the fantasy and sci-fi publishing uh, realm, and and since I'm I'm going to be coming out with a novel in 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 that space fairly soon, and uh, just hanging out with some friends and fellow writer friends from the from the North Texas troublemakers. And, uh, we're, uh, we're having a good time. Is there a difference in publishing fantasy than anything else? I mean, is it, you said oh. it's, it's specific, but, uh, it's, you know, I've published a couple myself and it seems like they would all kind of go down the same line. No, it, it is. Uh, but it's a different demographic, you know, it's a different demographic and, and how you, how you appeal to those readers and, and how you market to them and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, most of these people are extremely passionate about what they do and, and the readers are very passionate about what they read, you know, so, uh, it's important to get the elements right. Uh, so, um, you know, there, there are panels on this thing about how, if you're going to write about sci-fi, how to get the science right, or at least plausible, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So it's pretty interesting stuff. One of the, some of us are on some, some panels, uh, that they, they typically have at these things where, uh, uh, one of us is, uh, uh, one of us is on the panel about, uh, about a- accurate representation of firearms in these, in these novels, because people will, will quite often write about guns in these books. And it's quite obvious. They don't know anything about guns. It's kind of jarring to read that. It's like, no, he cocked the hammer on his Glock, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. So we have, we have panels to, to help teach people how to accurately uh, represent uh, firearms and uh, in, in their books, everything is pretty cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. You want to share what the book is going to be about? Or you want to keep it a secret? Sure, I'll, I'll I'll share what it's about. It's called uh, it's going to be called Kindred. It's a takeoff on the uh, on the legend of some dude. Uh, the premise is that some dude is is not just a uh, EMS legend. He is a he is a supernatural entity uh, that roams the earth wreaking havoc. And and uh, the first book in the series is going to be about his nemesis, the uh, the good guy that that's uh, tasked with taking some dude out. And um, he'll have a paramedic protagonist. Uh, it's we're gonna we're at a time hop over over uh, numerous time periods, man. So it's gonna it's gonna be pretty fun. Is there any chance of a, uh, a an Italian podcast host that can get a uh, shout out? Oh yeah, uh, you know yeah yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. oh hey hey, if you want me to, I'll red shirt you. Oh okay, you red shirt Yeah, yeah we'll, appreciate it. we'll put you in there. We'll we'll kill you off. And in some grotesque and, and uh, flamboyant manner. And uh, yeah, we'll red church. That's a good idea. Man. I don't have to write that down. Uh, right, ways to kill Chris. That's right. I'm sure you have that book already. <laughs> uh, you know, Kelly, as, as we kind of think about, uh, you know, our topics for discussion, 
you know, we're kind of laughing and, and joking here in the beginning, but um, you and I had the opportunity to kind of read the stories out of Dallas, Texas, and the investigation being open after a patient in Dallas police custody dies during an ambulance transport. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a video out, a 36-minute video that kind of showed body cam footage uh, that was released by the city of Dallas as yeah, they yeah. begin this investigation. And, you know, we're, we're not here to second guess you know, what happens there, you know, I think we want to be able to talk about, you know, a couple of things that we've noticed that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we, we, we uh, hope our peers that can learn from that if you haven't seen the video uh, and kind of move forward. But this was a call with uh, LaDamian Dwayne Hall, a transgender female, as the police came up upon the patient. She was very, very apprehensive to talk to the police, and they were asking if she was okay and, you know, very uh, despondent, but under a low breath would say yes, and do you need an ambulance, and no, and does anything hurt, and there was no real response. So you could tell that there was something going on that wasn't uh, comfortable for uh, this lady, and she... um, you know, as things started to move a little bit forward, um, as the fire department came on board, she started to become more and more animated. Uh, she started to take off her dress and, and, uh, they got concerned, I guess, about her well being, and they put her face down and yeah. handcuffed her. And then it was about 16 or 17 minutes before the ambulance arrived on scene. And, um, you know, they went ahead and, uh, uh, the patient was handcuffed, put face down. Um, there was a spit hood that was placed on the patient. And, you know, it just goes from there. And then uh, the unfortunate uh, um, incident uh, takes a, a horrible turn. As you can see, the um, you can see her starting to uh, what we what we think would be calm, but knowing from mm-hmm. expertise and experience and there's a difference between experience and expertise, by the way. Yeah. Um, she's really. Lots of people have experience, but still yeah. haven't developed expertise. You're absolutely right. And, um, but the eventuality is by the time they get out of the hospital, they're doing CPR. And yeah. you know, I think that there's a lot of lessons here to learn. Certainly these EMS personnel have been suspended pending this investigation. But Kelly, I think we want to talk about the lessons here, of what we're mm-hmm. learning from the video but uh, you know, I've kind of I've kind of capitalized a little bit of time. But uh, maybe yeah. your initial thoughts. Well, first of all, the, the officer officer condolences to uh, Miss Hall's family. Uh, a, a death is never um, never an easy thing, and and this is a this is a tragedy for all, for all involved, including the Dallas police and Dallas fire. But uh, I think it's a you know, you hesitate to make judgments because everybody is an expert about somebody else's call. We know this. We, we've, we've had those talks and, and, and heard whispers of, about this call or that call in, in squad rooms everywhere. Uh, but I think it's, it, it is an object lesson in the, in the risk that we run dealing with uh, psychiatric and, and uh, excited delirium patients. And not just the, the, uh, the risk to providers in dealing with these uh, potentially violent patients, uh, but the risk to the patient themselves and, and the liability risk. Uh, it's, it's an area fraught with uncertainty because on the one hand, you've got a patient who is, who is uh, uh, violent 
and and a danger to themselves and to you and your crew. On the other hand, you have recent cases in, in Colorado where sedating someone with ketamine um, resulted in their death. Uh, we don't know that the ketamine itself resulted in their death, but I mean, it, 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 it followed uh, and you worry about that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a tough space to be in for EMS providers, but I think there's some, some lessons we can take from this and, and some, some overall best practices we can share to help you avoid these, these uh, uh, adverse outcomes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, being a Monday morning quarterback, when you see the yeah. video, it gives you an opportunity to have a little bit more strategic thinking. But I think that one of the things first off that this comes to that, that came from me, and I've always disliked this, uh, even in uh, the paramedics that I've worked with uh, as a chief. I don't. I didn't allow people to sit behind the patient ever. Um, yeah. I think that that offers a little bit of complacency. We have to be able to see them. We have to be able to touch them. We have to be able to talk to them. In this particular case, Kelly, um, the individual was placed on her side. Uh, she had a spit hood and then the eventuality mm -hmm. was she was turned around and for a majority of the time, you know, there it was an officer, uh, I guess that, um, um, you know, accompanied the, uh, paramedic and yeah. they were sitting across on the bench seat. You know, there is a, another jump seat, uh, in the other side that they could have sat yeah. on, on the patient's other side. But when you're paying attention to the computer, when you're talking to the police officer, you're not, you don't have full intention yeah. of, uh, you know, engaging with the patient as the patient started to calm a little bit, I, I probably would have lifted the spit hood up, um, just to try to make some rapport. Yeah. But, uh, but with that said, I think one of the first things that EMS providers need to know is you have to be able to see your patient at any given time um mm -hmm. and not sit behind them so that's one of the things that i stop i yeah. stop in my agencies that i don't allow well i i have a different take on it than you do i i don't entirely agree with you on sitting in the in the airway seat of the captain's chair uh for a couple of reasons number one seated forward or backward uh with the restraint is the safest place to sit in the ambulance uh sitting sitting even with a four-point restraint on a side facing seat uh is not optimal um, but the other thing is, is, is me personally, and, and only speaking for me is if I am busy doing something, particularly if I'm, if I'm reading or if I'm focused on one thing and not able to keep up my scan and look around me sitting sideways in the ambulance, I'll puke, I'll, I'll get car sick. So, so I've long developed the habit of sitting in the airway seat after my direct patient care is done, you know. You, you get on a transport, you've assessed your patient, you've hooked them up to all the monitoring equipment, you, you know as much about them as you can other than continuing your history and talking to them, uh, and you've done, done all the interventions you're going to do, and there's still some transport time to, to, to pass, um, I will typically move to the airway seat. Now, there's a couple of caveats to that. In, in our ambulances, uh, we have we have a reflective wrap that goes over the rear windows. It's a bit of a privacy screen, and it's reflective. So when I've got a patient in semi Fowler's position, I'm sitting in the airway seat. I can look at that rear view, that rear window, and they can see me, and I can see them in that reflection. So I'm still looking at my patient, uh, even when they're sitting up. Uh, but I'm not car sick and, and ready to puke on them. Um, 
But the one thing I don't do is if I still have patient care to be done and assessment to be done and information to be learned, uh, I'm not, I'm not on my tablet computer. Uh, and I think that's a mistake, but, um, once again, uh, everybody is an expert about somebody else's call. Uh, I think though, that, that the monitoring equipment was, was, uh, should be applied to the patient as early as possible and as early as feasible. It's not always easy. You got a patient thrashing around just how much, you know, how, how good of an EKG tracing you're going to get in a patient that won't hold still. Uh, how can you do CO2 monitoring and, and apply oxygen on a patient with a spit hood on and so on and so forth. But the thing is with these excited delirium patients, the thing that kills them is acidosis. And if you're not monitoring cardiac and respiratory parameters uh, from the very beginning and being vigilant, it can sneak up on you. And, and uh, whether they're sedated or not, uh, personally, I, I think sedation is called for. Uh, but uh, if you're not doing cardiac and respiratory monitoring from the very beginning, you got a problem. And uh, I would have probably, with the police officer there, I would probably restrain the patient uh, in the manner that's, uh, that's most comfortable for me and, and best for my patient, you know. And, and uh, that's one thing that our, our uh, uh, agency has put into place. We have bought the, the, uh, the pre-hung restraints that fit on the stretcher frame, uh, and uh, we're required to use them on all psychiatric patients from, from this point forward. Yeah, what's the benefit? I mean, what does that do for you? Well, we have, number one, you don't have to, they're, they're attached in the appropriate place. You, you see a lot of people that put limb restraints on, and then when they, they while a patient is thrashing around, uh, they're seeking a place to, to attach the limb restraints to the stretcher frame, uh, and invariably the, the, uh, uh, they're placed in such a manner that the patient has too much slack and can still flail around and, and potentially hurt themselves or others. Uh, and these are already attached to the stretcher frame in the manner specified by the, by the manufacturer. And all you have to do is put them on the patient's limbs and position the stretcher appropriately. Uh, so it's, it's set up and in place for the eventuality that you have a, a, uh, a combative patient. Um, and you're not having to improvise a, uh, a restraint system. Uh, typically what I will do is I'll put the patient in semi-fowlers on the, on the stretcher. And, and if I have a patient is handcuffed, uh, once again, not judging, uh, another EMS provider on how they position their patient, something so seemingly trivial as that, but this works best for us. Uh, we put the patient semi-fowlers on the stretcher and one arm up, one arm down, one arm over their head, uh, to the head of the stretcher and one arm down by their side, uh, fully extended. So they can't flex and, 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 uh, and thrash about that way. And we will cross their feet at the ankles and, and secure their feet to the stretcher frame, then raise the, the foot of the stretcher a little bit to put some tension on it and put the rest of the, the standard ambulance cot restraints, uh, on the patient. And there's even, even with the, the strength of excited delirium and PCP and all this, there, there's not a whole lot of thrashing around that can be done. And they're plus, they're still in a position where you can access them. They can breathe adequately. Uh, and uh, they're not likely to, to do any harm. You deny them leverage, basically. Uh, and it works so much better. Yeah, it seems like it would. But let's go ahead and take our mid-show break, Kelly. Then when we come back, I got a couple more questions that I want to, uh, you know, get answered from you and I got a couple of comments that I want to make, but uh, 
Let's yeah. go and do our mid-show read and uh, come Let's back. do that. Everyone in EMS deserves a reliable communication network like FirstNet built with AT&T. Your fellow public safety professionals at more than 19,500 agencies nationwide rely on FirstNet to make sure they have the connectivity and data they need to care for patients. And FirstNet is now offering increased coverage in rural and tribal areas. So whether you're looking for an individual plan or an agency-wide solution, you can join FirstNet and check out their limited-time special offers at FirstNet.com. You know, so, you know, we're talking about this call that was in Dallas uh, of, of of a female who died in police custody. Yeah. There's an investigation going on. And, you know, I think we're, again, not here to point fingers or to, uh, you know, any judgment against, uh, you know, to be armchair quarterbacks, Monday morning quarterbacks. But, you know, one of the things that I find very, very interesting is we have people who are having um, some mental challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. some schizophrenia maybe and from the very beginning when we look at this video um you know she's very very um uh you know she's not engaging uh, a little bit of worry and then as it escalates um you know it gets a little bit more um uh, the patient gets a little bit more fired up to where she is uh, placed face down handcuffed yeah. and then she's on the stretcher handcuffed you know one of the things that we don't get in the habit of Kelly is when we see patients with this presentation, how do we know? I mean, how do we know that this isn't hypoglycemia, right? So, you know, I used to, used to talk about it being a metabolic issue, but it is a metabolic issue because of acidosis, but how do we know that this is a mental issue and not a sugar issue? Right. I mean, there is one point in the video that the police or fire, I don't know whom, say, do you have diabetes? And, you know, the patient responds, diabetes, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Um, or something to that effect, but a D stick would be something that needed to be done to at least make a determination that I don't need to give any sugar here. Um, but I think that this is one of the things that we get hung up on when it comes to, um, patients who are, um, that we think are having a mental challenge that we're having, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a mental breakdown or, you know, that are acting kind of quote unquote with bunny ears, crazy. Um, yeah. we have to remember that this could be a sugar issue until that's, uh, taken away from us. We have to be able to do our due diligence. And, um, I think that that's one of the lessons that I get from this as well. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we can certainly fall prey to, to cognitive biases when we and, and assumptions when we arrive on these scenes. And, you know, the dispatch information said psychiatric patient violent, uh, possibly on drugs or, or, or whatever comes across your terminal. And, and you get in the mindset of that's what you're dealing with. And sometimes, uh, particularly when we're stressed and we're overworked and we're not uh, on top of our games, we can assume and we can follow down that path and, and not consider all the other possibilities and differential diagnoses. So, yeah, I think with, uh, I agree with you that, that anytime you have a, a uh, patient who is not behaving appropriately, uh, showing some sort of behavioral disorder, uh, you need to go through your, your list of, of differential diagnoses and try to rule out potentially treatable metabolic causes, whatever acronym or, or memory aid you want to use, AEIOU tips or, or whatever, go through those and, and, and fix the ones that you can. Uh, and it's not outside the realm of possibility that a patient without, uh, that denies diabetes, uh, could be diabetic and could be hypoglycemic. 
uh, or could be on some medication that interferes with glucose metabolism pathways. Uh, so it's it's not uh, it's it's not uh, unheard of at all for for a patient who says diabetes. What's that? To actually have a diabetic problem, um, you know, and uh, or a head injury or any one of a number of things. Uh, that's I think that's that's an essential part of best practice there. Whenever you deal with these patients, and and uh, it's taught in paramedic school, you know, uh, that that uh, when you have a patient who has a, a potential behavioral disorder or altered mental status, you're supposed to rule out metabolic causes. I teach that. You teach that. We were taught that. Um, it's not fault finding with the paramedic crew uh, on this call or any other call, but but it is an example of if if we get complacent, uh, there can be some some really bad outcomes, and and uh, this may have been the the case in in here where you know you get there and the police already have the person restrained. It's obvious that they're violent, uh, and and you continue down that pathway to the exclusion of all of considering all others. Um, I think, Chris, that, that what we have to do in these patients is, is, is approach this in a logical and, and, uh, and methodical manner. And first, starting with ruling out metabolic uh, causes and, and treating any that we can find. And then we work on stopping the fight. And when I say stopping the fight, I don't mean um, – restraining the patient where they can't do you any harm. I mean, stopping the fight because restraining the patient only shifts the fight from patient versus providers to patient versus restraints. And, and, and if the patient is continuing to struggle, uh, they're still expending metabolic energy. They are still uh, uh, probably shifting into anaerobic metabolism and becoming acidotic. Uh, they may even struggle. So I had one patient struggle for so long because the physician refused to sedate him that he wound up with rhabdomyolysis and, and DIC uh, and wound up dying as a sequel of that. It's just uh, we, we need to, I think that, that sedation, uh, chemical restraint is a valuable tool in the toolbox that should be considered uh, with the caveats that, uh, especially since we learned in, in uh, Colorado, that it needs to be dosed appropriately uh, and it needs to be given for the proper indications. And, and I think that that continuing to struggle and fight uh, under physical restraints is one of those indications. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to, um, you know, these types of calls, we, we, it really becomes more science. You know, one of the other things, and I'm going to give you two more points before I hand it over to you for your final thought. Okay. And, you know, I think the spit hood, I, I've never been a fan of it either. I, I've, I've been spit on before. Uh, I've been puked on before. I've had blood all over me before. I mean, so, I mean, that's just going to be the nature mm -hmm. of the beast. I think EMS agencies should think about having you know, face shields um, instead of spit hoods, you know, because really we, we don't want them. We don't want mm -hmm. the uh, saliva to get in our mucous membranes. Uh, yeah. You know, on my shirt, I could always wash it on my pants. I could always wash it. I don't want it in my eyes. I don't want it in my nose. I don't want it in my mouth. Um, and if we could have face shields um, and take away the spit hoods, I, I think that, that has, uh, that's going to be, even though they say it doesn't impede breathing, I've never been a fan of it. Yeah. Um, but even if you, even if you got a spit hood on, you can still take it off, put on an yeah, auction delivery device. I'm sorry. As, as the patient now was starting <laughs> to calm a little bit, as you can see in the video, 
that would have been a time for me to lift it up and try to develop a little bit more rapport, maybe put a little mm-hmm. bit of oxygen on. Um, but but here's the other point that I want to give before I, I hand it over to you for the, your final thought. Um, here are two paramedics, uh, two members of the Dallas Fire Department that have been temporarily suspended pending investigation. And I, I think the biggest lesson I take from this is on any given call, we are in jeopardy of being scrutinized to a point of losing our certification. Mm -hmm. And certainly I hope that that's not what happens, that people don't lose their certification without a full investigation, but we have to be able to ensure that we do everything as best that we can, because we Mm -hmm. never know when we walk upon a patient and say, hi, my name is Chris. I'm a paramedic. This is my partner, Kelly. We're here to take care of you. Is that okay? Um, We don't know how this is going to end. And we've got to be prepared now that we're starting to see nurses that are brought up on charges and paramedics now that are um, being brought up on charges and that we don't know what call Mm -hmm. that we're going to be in the news at the end of that call. And that's something I think we need to be very, very cognizant of because our world is changing and uh, it could be that next call that we're reading and talking about and trying to learn lessons that uh, you were the EMT and paramedic on. And uh, we've got to be very, very aware of that. Yes, I I agree fully. And, but, but I take a a slightly different perspective on it. I I think that's something that we, I worry more, not about these paramedic certification and their, their livelihood or anything else. Uh, I worry about what it does to them as human beings and providers, um, because we are our own worst critics. And, you know, and and when you lose a patient uh, that started off with good vital signs and then died in your ambulance unexpectedly, um, we're not talking about the, you know, the trauma victim or the the MI uh, or the the code that you resuscitated and then lost a pulse again. We're talking about someone who who the, the outcome of death was unexpected. Uh, a good provider questions himself and and what did I do wrong or could I have done anything differently? We are our own worst critics and and those, those headstones in your own psychic graveyard, uh, the ones that stand out most prominently are the ones that where you believe you could have done better and you failed someone. Um, So I, I hope that, uh, that this event doesn't, um, uh, doesn't uh, torture the the uh, EMS crew members involved uh, and and cause them you know emotional turmoil uh, in the future wondering what they could have done better but the way to to uh, keep that from happening is to do your best for every single patient that's easily said by a couple of podcasters after the fact and I still work a truck and I'm not at my best every single day but I try to be uh, and and when a lesson occurs to someone else. Uh, that that drives that point home that you need to be at your best every single day and, and complacency is something you cannot afford. You need to learn that lesson. And uh, here, here we have a perfect example of that. And that's my takeaway from it. Um, do your best for every patient uh, so that you don't question yourself afterwards. Could I have done better? Could this have been a better outcome? Had I, uh, had I been more vigilant? Had I, uh, 
displayed more compassion for the patient, whatever the case may be. Do your best for every patient. And you don't have to question yourself uh, when the outcome is bad. Uh, but hey, that's my thoughts. We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.